the key words, I think, in all of this are, but God. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away, as we are looking to unleash God's Word in its entirety, from beginning to end, and unlock the power within the pages of Scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's Word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Tonight, we're going to be dealing with Moab, Egypt, and Ethiopia, uh, pretty much, and Damascus. So we're going to look at some pretty cool stuff. These are kind of skipped over a lot of times because there's not maybe as much application to individual life, but it's still important. It's in God's Word. Let's learn it and understand. So let's open up uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Isaiah writes, the burden against Moab, meaning this burden is a prophecy or of judgment that's pretty severe. So this burden against Moab, because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night Ker and Moab is laid waste and destroyed. So what is happening is Isaiah is looking into the future and he sees this neighboring country of Moab, which exists across the Dead Sea from Bethlehem, uh, and he sees in the future a destruction that's going to come on Moab. This is likely the Assyrian army being raised up, just like they defeated the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, they're likely going to also take out the country of Moab. That did happen, and this is likely the judgment that Isaiah has seen. Now, Moab, for your edification, uh, if you don't remember, Moab comes from Lot, Abraham's nephew. They're descendants of Lot. After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, when Lot and his family was saved, uh, from that except for his wife who looked back and became a pillar of salt, um, in that moment, the daughters of Lot, particularly the eldest daughter, had this thought that, oh no, we've left the city, we're fleeing our chances of having children and extending our line and all of the important things to them in that culture uh, seemed to be fleeing from them and they didn't think they were going to have the opportunity. So they took that into their own hands and they got Lot drunk and slept with him and the eldest son of uh, the, the descendant from that interaction of Lot's eldest daughter, she named him Moab, and then the Moabites became a cursed people uh, from that interaction with Lot. And that's the group of people that their descendant from Moab, Lot's eldest daughter, 
uh, who was born in sin. Now, there are some Moabites who are exalted in Scripture, such as Ruth. The book, entire book of Ruth is about a Moabitess who God blesses and comes into the Messianic line. She actually is an ancestor of Jesus from her uh, marriage to Boaz. But in general, Moab has this sort of interaction with them. You're going to get uh, the judgment that's coming on Moab through the rest of this scripture. So that's the background of Moab. Part of the reason that they're likely getting destroyed or part of their destruction is even from just being that cursed people from that interaction, uh, but also uh, how they have treated Israel since uh, and some of their interaction during this invasion, which we're going to see uh, through chapter 15. So verse 2, he has gone up to the temple and uh, up to the temple and deboned to the high places to weep. Moab will wail over Nebo and Mediba. On all their heads will be baldness, and on every beard and every beard cut off in their streets, they will clothe themselves with sackcloth on the tops of their houses and in their streets. Everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. So whatever this judgment is, it's going to cause shame to the people because it's going to be humiliating defeat, uh, which is why it says on their heads will be baldness and every beard will be cut off because that's a sign of shame to the people. Uh, and it's going to be nationwide. You're going to see everyone going up to the high places to worship their false gods because they're crying out for help uh, all over Moab. Verse 4, Heshbon and uh, El Elah will cry out, their voice shall be heard as far as Yahatz. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out, his life will be burdensome to him. My heart will cry out for Moab, his fugitives shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer, for by the ascent of Luhith they will go up with weeping, for in the way of Horonaim they will raise up a cry of destruction. So even uh, Isaiah, as he views this judgment that's coming, sort of weeps uh, for the people of Moab for how disastrous this is. And then we get this little interesting connection. And it says, my heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar. Now back in Genesis 19, you get the moment where Sodom and Gomorrah is being judged and Lot escapes Sodom and Gomorrah by the grace of God and the angels helping him get out of Sodom and Gomorrah before the destruction. And where Lot and his daughters flee is to the land of Zoar before they head into the wilderness. And so they flee to Zoar. Interestingly, during this destruction that God is going to bring on those descendants of Lot, they end up fleeing to the same place Lot did uh, to avoid the destruction. So that's just an interesting piece of information. For the waters of Nimrim will be desolate, from, for the green grass has withered away, the grass fails, there is nothing green. Therefore the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. For the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab, and its wailing to Iglim, and its wailing to Beer Elim. For the waters of Demon will be full of blood, because I will bring more upon Demon lions upon him who escapes from Moab and on the remnant of the land. Now, Assyria is not specifically mentioned, but it does talk about lions here in verse 9, which was a symbol of Assyria, so even more so likely because this is a destruction that came upon Moab. Uh, and 
Assyria was the one who did this. And you get this in verse 8, from the borders of Moab, it's wailing from a gleam and it's wailing to Be'er Alim. Really, what this is saying is from the north to the south, throughout the entire country of Moab, wailing will ensue. Shame, humiliation, destruction, an army is coming. Um, and it says, for the waters of Demon will be full of blood, meaning there's just going to be quite a massacre when the army comes and wipes Moab out. Chapter 16, still on the destruction of Moab. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from, the, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughters of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab and the fords of Arnon. And so that is probably very confusing to you. <laughs> what is going on here? Uh, what's happening is God is saying to Isaiah, who's giving this message to the Israelites, is when this goes down, when Moab is destroyed like this, the right thing for them to do would have been to bring a peace offering, a lamb, to Israel. And then Israel would have allowed the fugitives or the exiles um, in to take care of them. But instead of the majority, instead of heading to Israel, uh, which they're sort of related because of you know the whole Abraham and Lot connection, instead of heading that direction, they went to Edom. And Edom, so instead of heading northwest, they head uh, south. They head south to Edom, most likely because the Assyrians attacked from the north, so they're fleeing in this opposite direction uh, to get as far away from them as, as possible, and they head to Edom. And so they rely on their smarts rather than on God's people, uh, and that is their folly. So take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day, hide the outcasts, do not betray him who escapes. So this is a message to the people of Judah, to the Israelites in Jerusalem, for those that do come to you as they're fleeing this Assyrian army, take care of them. That's it. Now let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab, be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at an end, devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. So now we fast forward all the way to the end, to the future coming of Jesus, where ultimately all the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people and God's chosen nation, Israel, um, they, the oppression will cease and the ruler, Jesus, will sit on the throne in the tabernacle of David. So he will be sitting in Jerusalem, judging and seeking, and seeking righteousness. So eventually all the oppression will cease Israel will be raised up, and the ruler in Israel will be Jesus. That's what's being stated there. We have heard, verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud, or his haughtiness, and his pride, and his wrath. But his lies shall not be so. Therefore Moab shall wail for Moab, everyone shall wail. For the foundations of Ker, Hereseth, you shall mourn, surely they are stricken. 
for the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma, the Lord of the nation, the lords of the nations, have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Yatzer, and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out; they are gone over the sea. So Moab used to be a lush green place filled with produce and. Uh, their abundance would actually stretch out into the surrounding nations because they just had so much, and God is bringing famine on them. He is destroying their crops and the things that they were actually known for, and the pride of Moab, the pride that uh, kept them worshiping their false gods because they kept yielding good crops and making them wealthy, that is getting crushed down, and God is breaking them down and bringing humility to them. Uh, interestingly, it is also a famine in Moab that brought Ruth out of Moab into the land of Israel with Naomi that put her in the Messianic line. So the coming of Jesus the first time had to do with the Mo Moabitess who came out of Moab due to a famine and judgment on the land brought her into Israel to marry Boaz, that produced Jesus from the Messianic line. And here in the, you see a judgment on Moab. Uh, and somehow this is also in line in the same scriptures where Isaiah is also predicting Jesus's return. But even though this judgment on Moab has already happened, the judgment of the nations that oppose Israel and famine will also produce the return of the Messiah. So there's a bit of a connection there. Verse 9, Therefore, I will bewail the vine of Sibma with the weeping of Yatzer. I will drench, I will drench you with my tears, O Hashban and El-Elah. For battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. Gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards there will be no singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders to tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. Therefore, my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Kir Herez. Uh, that's just a poetic way of saying the same thing, that the plentiful fields and the plentiful crops are going away, and you're going to weep over that. And it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all the great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. So, Moab will be destroyed by the Assyrian army, very close to when Isaiah is prophesying this, within three years. Uh, and then from there will be a small remnant of the Moabite people, which would be those likely who decided to go and flee to Israel rather than Edom. Chapter 17. Now we're going to get a look at something unique. Starts out by saying this, Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. This is prophecy yet to be fulfilled. Damascus is still a city now, and it is currently in the middle of a whole lot of conflict in Syria. It gets bombed constantly <laughs> uh, by Israel. It is uh, a place for terrorist proxies from Iran. Uh, it is still 
a problem. Damascus is one of the oldest cities in the world. It still exists. It has never ceased from being a city. So this is unfulfilled prophecy. This is about end times events. So one of the things that a lot of people who uh, deal in eschatology or end times discussions, one of the things they keep their eyes on is the city of Damascus and the conflict that goes there because this prophecy is still yet to be fulfilled and the timing of it is argued about. So uh, keep your eyes on Damascus in the headlines. The cities of Aroer are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down and no one will make them afraid. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. So there is a point in time where Assyria is going to come against Damascus, but Damascus was never destroyed. But in the near future, the fulfillment of this, which isn't fully fulfilled because Damascus didn't cease from being a city, um, Assyria will come and there is a military alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel. But as we know, Assyria destroys the northern kingdom of Israel and overtakes them as they do with Damascus and Syria. So uh, putting your faith in that alliance does not help you instead of faith in God where you should have had it. So that's the point that's being made there. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. In that day, so you get that phrase, in that day, which usually refers to end times events. It shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. It shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the head with his arm. It shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleaning the grapes will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the upper, uppermost bow, four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the God of Israel. In that day, a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. So we're looking at end times events. We're seeing the complete destruction of Damascus, um, maybe an alliance that was broken uh, during this attack. And as such, Israel is also attacked. And as they are, their glory or the things that they're proud of probably again, agriculture, uh, is stripped from them. So the picture that's painted here is uh, like when someone would glean grapes or olives from a tree and just pick and yield all of it, even more so than they were commanded to by the law because they were meant to leave some left over for the poor to glean from. And they're saying, no, this is a really thorough job. So there's almost nothing left. And in so doing, in that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. So repentance is coming because of the respect for God that they get at the judgment that they receive. Their eyes go back up to the one they should have been worshiping the whole time rather than their own pride or trusting in their military alliances. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, he will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. So man will not rely on what he is capable of building, in particular, 
things that are idols, you know, things that are worshipped as false gods. Uh, goodbye idols, welcome true worship of the one true God. In that day, his strong cities will be as forsaken bough and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. Verse 10, because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful, the rock of your stronghold, therefore you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In that day, you will make your plants to grow. In the morning, you will make your seed to flourish, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. So, out of abundance, in a time of abundance, this desolation comes and judgment comes and the people of Israel in Israel are very secular and not worshiping God, prideful in themselves. They have really great agricultural uh, tools, uh, yet somehow in this judgment, regardless of their plentiful harvests and their work that they put in, they actually reap nothing because of the judgment that comes on them from God. So I could easily see how that would fit into today's culture because Israel uh, is one of the greatest agricultural places on the earth. They're third or fourth uh, largest exporter in the world of produce, um, and they also are a majority secular nation. Um, even though they are cult culturally, a lot of them follow the uh, feasts and... Uh, cultural traditions or religious traditions, they are not themselves religious. Uh, so, make of that what you will. Verse 12, woe to the multitude of many who make a noise like a roar of the seas, so an army's coming, and to the rushing of the nations that make a rushing like the rushing of many waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away. Now, this might be connected to Ezekiel 38 and 39. So keep this in mind when we get there uh, as we go through the prophets. Uh, because the chronology here is the destruction of Damascus, judgment on Israel. Uh, and then right here we see a multitude of many people, armies from all over the place coming at Israel, which looks a whole lot like the description in Ezekiel 38 of surrounding nations that are named in that chapter uh, coming at Israel. And it seems like there's no hope. But then you get this message here in verse 13 that says, the nations will rush like the rushing of many waters as they come up against Israel. But God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind like a rolling thing before the whirlwind, then behold, at evening trouble, and before the morning he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us, and the lot of those who rob us. So, because there is this repentance at this judgment, and the people start coming back to God, even in this desperate time, as these nations rise up and come up against Israel, and come to attack them, they are saved by the grace of God, apparently in a way that only God can do. And they run away and flee and are destroyed. We'll get, keep 
this chapter in mind as we go to Ezekiel 38 later down the line in our Bible studies. But crazy stuff. So armies come up against Israel, and then the key phrase, but God. Because if God has promised you something to protect you, that promise is kept regardless of the circumstance that you're in. God is bigger than whatever scary thing can come at you here on earth. Chapter 18, Proclamation Against Ethiopia is probably the title uh, you see over it. Uh, at the time that Isaiah is prophesying this, Egypt has been conquered by the Ethiopians. So Egypt is included in this judgment. Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, uh, which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed on the waters, saying, Go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible uh, from their beginning onward, a nation powerful in treading down whose land the rivers divide. All inhabitants of the world and dwellers of the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountain, you see it, and when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat and harvest. For the harvest when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower. He will both cut off the springs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. And so you get this description of the people in the land and then they're going to, a banner is going to be Lifted up and a trumpet's going to be blown, really signifying war is coming. You would carry your banners and have a trumpet blast during times of war uh, to signify attack or defense. So that's what you're looking at in that description. Verse 6, they will be left together for the mountains, uh, for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. In that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin and people terrible from the beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide to the place to the name of the Lord of hosts to Mount Zion. So these surrounding nations, particularly Ethiopia, which again is mentioned in Ezekiel 38, um, one day... All of these peoples, even the enemies of the people of God, will come to Israel to worship God. So these people that were described as receiving judgment now say uh, they come to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts to Mount Zion. So this is reiterating some of what we see elsewhere in the Bible, that one day every knee will bow, every nation will praise God. Uh, so someday they will come to Israel to worship God. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of, of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in his midst. I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor. City against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fall in its midst. I will destroy their council and they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. And the Egyptians... I will give into the hand of a cruel master and a fierce king who will rule over them, says the Lord of hosts. So Egypt will experience a lot of turmoil and uh, civil unrest and, and fighting, which, by the way, 
we've seen a lot of in recent times in turmoil. So imagine it will be even worse uh, in the end times. The waters uh, will fail from the sea and the river and will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away, and be no more. The fishermen will also mourn, and those will lament who cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed, and its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. So the riches and resources of Egypt will be dried up. That's what's being said. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counsel give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now. And let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived. The princes, are, they have also deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst, and they caused Egypt to err in all her work. As a drunken man staggers in his vomit, neither will there be any work for Egypt, which the head or tail, palm branch, or bulrush may do. Uh, Egypt, once a cultural powerhouse and wealthy through much of ancient history, has become sort of just a chaotic place. Uh, so it looks like this is literally fulfilled in our midst, you know. Uh, in that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over it. And the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts, one will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. So even though judgment is coming, there is redemption for the land of Egypt. They will come to serve the Lord in a mighty way. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them a savior, a mighty one, and he will deliver them. So it looks like in the end, when Israel is rescued from the return of Jesus, conquering the enemies of Israel, the savior will also save Egypt from the oppression of the world as well. Then the Lord will know Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it and the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. So you see the redemption arc of Egypt. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel be one, will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts uh, shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. 
and Israel my inheritance. It's really interesting that Egypt is the nation of which uh, the Israelite people were called out of to go take the promised land. They're also the, the Pharaoh also killed their greatest king, Josiah. Um, the land of Assyria were the conquering nations or empire that took out the northern kingdom of Israel and marched all the way up to Jerusalem against the kingdom of Judah. And though they didn't, they didn't succeed in taking the southern kingdom of Judah, they came pretty close. They're major oppressors of Israel. And Assyria, in the capital of Assyria, was also founded by Nimrod back after the flood, the Tower of Babel. Um, when that was built, Nimrod was the one who led that world uh, order, really. The, he was the political leader of gathering all the people together to build the Tower of Babel and not follow God's order to spread out and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Uh, but instead stay together and build the Tower of Babel and exalt man over God's orders. And he was the one, Nimrod, who built the city of Nineveh as well, which uh, was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This empire that came against Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And Nimrod himself is a picture of the coming Antichrist, the one who gathers the world together in opposition to God um, and gets people to work together and exalt themselves as God over God. Um, and so it's interesting that in the end, these are the two nations that God humbles through judgment and brings redemption, a redemption ark to. That Egypt and Assyria become fully redeemed at the end along with Israel. So it's just unique. And the, even in judgment, even when things are bleak and destruction is all over the place in the Old Testament, you see a redemption arc in God's plan uh, because God also is not just a God of judgment. He's also a God of mercy uh, and redemption. So just interesting to note chapter 20. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body, and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years, for a sign and wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt their glory. And the inhabitant of its territory will say, In that day surely is our expectation, wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, how shall we escape? So, Ethiopia and Assyria, Egypt and Assyria at one point had this uh, military alliance. They tried to connect with uh, the kingdoms of Israel as well as the Babylonians were on the rise. And that military alliance failed 
and Babylon conquered all of them. So again, that failure is stop putting hope in your military alliance rather than God. God is the only thing who can save you. And so ultimately at the end of these five chapters, you witnessed a lot of some, some future prophecy, uh, God's judgment on the surrounding nations, and then ultimately his redemption arc uh, when he comes and returns and rules in the millennial kingdom and brings redemption to people. And so the key words, I think, in all of this are, but God. And people can rely on themselves for a long time. You can create all kinds of alliances and worry about the powers of the earth and trying to overcome uh, destruction that maybe you see coming or an advancing army that you see coming. But nothing can stop judgment um, and nothing can stop destruction except God. And so the answer in our own lives is sin is the thing that destroys us. The wages of sin is death. And so the constant reminder is, but God. God gave us a way out. Our destruction doesn't have to be certain because of the cross. And so the same, in the same way that God is the thing and the only way out of destruction for nations, it's also true for the individual. But God, destruction isn't certain because redemption is possible because of the cross. Just like the redemption of the nations will come at the hand of Jesus, the redemption of the individual comes at the cross. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Um, thank you for the prophecies of Isaiah, which can be somewhat confusing or even seem hard to understand because of the time frame that we live in where these things don't seem quite as relevant. But the truth is, some of it is. And all of it's meaningful because you have either kept your promises through fulfilled prophecy, and because of that, we know the prophecy that's still to come will be fulfilled in entirety because you are a promise keeper. And God, I pray that we learn and accept the cross so that we can experience our personal redemption and can't wait to see and be a part of the nations when you return and reign in perfection for a thousand years. In Jesus' name, amen.